Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I'm Laura Fenn, and today I'm at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in beautiful downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. With me is Dr. Paul Brinkman. He's the Assistant Director of Paleontology and Geology at the museum. Dr. Brinkman is a historian of science. And uh, Dr. Brinkman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Tell me, what in the world is a historian of science? Well, historian of science uh, is like other historians interested in you know, things in the past, but uh, we're particularly interested in uh, in dead scientists. Um, in dead scientists. Right. Okay. Right. So <laughs> art history, military history, history of religion, history of science. There's all kinds of subfields in history. I particularly specialize in uh, 19th century American natural historians, basically. Okay, so you study the life of those scientists, or or you study what those scientists studied? Well, a little of both. Okay. I mean, I'm interested in uh, I mean, I'm interested in their work, obviously, the stuff they published, uh, their contributions to science, but I'm also also interested in them as people. Do you have a favorite? I have a lot of favorites, but my absolute favorite is Elmer Riggs, paleontologist at the Field Museum in Chicago. Tell us about Elmer Riggs. Uh, well, I got interested in Elmer, I suppose, uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I, I worked at the Field Museum for a long time, uh, and so a lot of the things that I was working on, a lot of the uh, a lot of the specimens, for instance, that I worked on, had been collected by him. A lot of pictures I saw around the department were pictures of him or pictures taken by him. A lot of publications issued by the department in its early years were all written by him. And so I saw his name all over the place, and I wondered, who is this guy? <laughs> and when I went to read about him, I found that there was almost nothing in the uh, history of science literature about Elmer Riggs. And so there's this interesting guy and this interesting gap in the literature, and it seemed to me that this gap needed to be filled. And that was more or less, that's the very short version of how I launched my career in history of science, was working on Elmer. Fantastic. And so... Um, do historians of science research any fields outside of science, or we do? I mean, like other historians, we uh, we draw uh, lots of things into our story. So it's not enough just to talk about Elmer's scientific work. We have to talk about the context for it too. Explain so, more of it. What do you mean by the context of it? Well, so for instance, it wouldn't be very interesting to tell a story just about Elmer's dinosaur paleontology without saying something about his his life. Uh, without saying something about turn of the 20th century Chicago history, uh, the institutional context for his work. So he worked to be in a very, he was the very first paleontologist at the Field Museum. So you have to tell something about the story about museum building in Chicago, about philanthropy and philanthropists, about Gilded Age fortunes, like Marshall Field is part of that story, of course. So you're creating an, in the story. So you're giving the whole, you know, background information and all the, the interesting characters yeah. that Exactly. What I usually tell people uh, who are confused about my role in the paleontology and geology <laughs> lab is that I write books about the people who write books about dinosaurs. So how did you become a historian of science? What was the sort of first step into that other than Elmer? Well, I've always liked history. I mean, I've always liked dinosaurs. Every 8- to 12-year-old boy loves dinosaurs, um, probably girls too. <laughs> so I've loved history and science for a long, long time. And I was a history major in college and wasn't really sure what I would do with it. And it seemed like there were opportunities to work in paleontology where there might not have been in, in history. And paleontology, just for those of us who might not know, is the study of dinosaurs. Or, well, the study of ancient life. Oh, okay. um, including dinosaurs. Oh, okay. I'm particularly interested in dinosaurs, as was uh, as were some of the people I work on. 
Um, but basically, it's the study of ancient life through fossils. Okay. And so I loved paleontology. I'd, I'd had a chance to go do some field work in paleontology, and that was really fun. And uh, so I decided to pursue a career in paleontology by volunteering at the Field Museum in Chicago. While I was there, I was also taking a few classes at uh, University of Illinois Chicago in paleontology. This, this is kind of a sad story, I suppose, for young students, but uh, I, I didn't love the classes. I mean, I liked them. I, lo- I liked the content, but I, did, I discovered through taking these courses that I didn't really love doing paleontology. And so this was a really confusing time for me. This lasted for a couple of years. But one day, in talking to one of my mentors at the Field Museum about this issue, right, this, the fact that I couldn't really find a niche in paleontology that was, you know, that appealed to me, I wanted to love it. I mean, it was such an exciting place to be, and there were lots of people doing exciting things, and they all seemed so excited about their work, and I couldn't really find the thing that excited me about it, uh, the way these these people I was working with were excited. Uh-huh. And so in talking to this, uh, this mentor, he said, well, you know, it seems to me that you really love history of science. And it was like a light went on. So I, uh, I researched history science programs. I found one that seemed suitable. I enrolled in it. And that's what I've been doing ever since. What a lucky occurrence, right? That you were just having a conversation with somebody, trying to figure out what you were interested in, trying to put a finger on it. And then somebody was able to point you in the right direction. And, yes. I, and I think that that's such an important thing for our students to realize is, you know, that very often people don't know what they want to do. They don't know what direction they want to go. And they know that they're interested in something, but they don't know how they can turn that into a career that makes them happy. Yeah. And so it sounds like that was a very fortuitous thing that you were able to it was. I'm, I mean, I regret that it didn't come a little earlier because I, <laughs> I might have finished while I was still young and energetic, but I'm glad it happened eventually. And I guess the lesson here is that the students should try a lot of different things. You know, it's sometimes it's hard to zero in on exactly what it is that's really, really interesting to them. Um, when you were a kid... What did you think you were going to get into? What was your dream job? Well, I, I suppose like most kids, I, uh, you know, that changed with time. I mean, when I was really young, I wanted to be a fireman uh, and then an astronaut. But I did always like dinosaurs. I mean, as long as I can remember, I loved the book Danny and the Dinosaur when I was, uh, you know, a second grader or first grader. I can't even remember when I started reading that. But, um, so I've always loved museums and dinosaurs and mummies and things like that. And I guess I thought... I didn't really know what a career doing those kinds of things would look like, what what a person who was interested in dinosaurs would do. And so I don't know that I ever really conceived of being a paleontologist or being, say, an Egyptologist or a, a, a person who works in a museum, a curator, because I had no idea what those people did. But I just knew I loved those things. And so I changed my mind a lot when I was growing up about what I wanted to do. I don't know. Eventually, I just stumbled into the museum world, and uh, I've been there ever since. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the research that you're currently working on? I have some in my notes, um, something about transatlantic exchange of ideas. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What I'm referring to there is um, the interchange of specimens and ideas between England and the New World. Not exclusively, but mostly. I mean, mostly I work um, in, on Anglo-American subjects. But I'm also very interested in South America, so I, I work a little bit in Spanish as well. But I'm interested in how people collecting bizarre new specimens in places like South America or even in, in North America and then moving those specimens back 
to Europe, usually to England, how those specimens changed ideas about nature. What time frame are you talking about that these specimens would have been collected and then transported back? That's been going on a very long time. I mean, almost since Columbus. I'm particularly interested in the 19th century. One of my main sources is scientific correspondence, and the 19th century just happens to be a time when people were communicating through letters all the time. So there are these really rich collections of scientific correspondence from the 19th century. And since those are one of my most important sources, I just happen to gravitate to those kinds of subjects. So you go back to those original documents, those letters that people wrote back and forth, and in those letters they sort of described to their colleagues back in England what they might have been discovering in South America? Exactly. So correspondence, diaries, journals, field maps, uh, all, any archival source, any manuscript source, anything written by hand that was never published is potentially a goldmine of information for my kind of work. Am I correct in that you are looking at what the existing ideas might have been in England at the time, in the 1800s, and then when they received these shipments of new species that they were that were found in South America or wherever, but how their idea of the world changed exactly. because of what they were discovering halfway around the Earth? Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about what, what did happen or, or sort of what changes? Probably the most famous example is that um, is the idea of extinction. So uh, you have to imagine a time when naturalists, when no one knew that species go extinct, that they, they go out forever. That idea was, was alien to naturalists uh, before about the, about the turn of the, of the uh, 18th century. And it was specimens collected in the Americas mostly that sort of, that people had been talking about the possibility of extinction because a few specimens that were a little bizarre had been found in places like Europe and in Asia. But it was um, Megatherium, and then the American Mastodon, and then again the Mammoth from America that really made this argument. So these, so people were collecting specimens of Mastodons and Megatherium and, and Mylodon. What are all those? Mastodon and uh, and Mammoth are, are giant elephant-like animals. Okay. Megalonyx and Megatherium are giant ground sloths. Ah, uh, and where so, were they located? South America? Well, the original, the first one, Megatherium, was found in South America, but they're all over the Americas. Uh, so the first ones were collected in South America. A few were also collected in North America. And when these specimens made their way to Europe, naturalists in Europe realized that these were almost certainly extinct. Uh, people had been exploring the Americas for close to two centuries by this point, and no one had seen a live one. And most people could not believe that living mastodons or giant ground sloths could possibly be, even in unexplored areas like Patagonia or, uh, or the western U.S. Of course, there were a few holdouts, Thomas Jefferson being the most famous one, who insisted that the great chain of being could never be severed, that no creature created by God could go extinct, and so therefore there must be megalonics roaming the American West, and he sent, allegedly sent uh, Lewis and Clark West, in part, to find living examples of these weird animals. So because the, the scientists down in South America had found, the, the paleontologists had found the fossil remains and then sent them back, that's sort of what led to the idea that of extinction. That, right. in fact, there's no way that any of these giant sloths could be roaming around, and but we do have their bones. Therefore, the only thing we can, the conclusion is that they were once here, but now right. they're extinct. They must have lived once, but they don't live now. Uh, so, Dr. Brinkman, you also do a little paleontology. How are historians of science and paleontologists similar? 
Well, one way they're similar is that both paleontologists and historians go to places to collect data. Paleontologists go in the field. They do field work. And when you say in the field, can you just, for some some of us who might not know what the field is, what does that mean? So field work in paleontology means going somewhere to collect fossils. Uh, we usually go west because that's where most fossils are found, um, not because there aren't fossils in the east, but they're just harder to find here. Uh, so places like Utah, where the climate is semi-arid, so we can go to places like that to find fossils fairly easily and fairly abundantly, and we'll be doing that this summer. When we go west and collect fossils, it's, it's a roll of the dice. We might hope to find a particular animal to resolve a particular question, but very likely we'll find something completely different that addresses some other question and suggests a new question or a new project that we then pursue when we get it back to the museum. And it's very similar for a historian of science. So a historian of science goes to an archive, for instance. So the equivalent of field work for a historian is to go to some collection of manuscripts. We call those archives. Uh, we usually find those in museums, but they're also in libraries, they're at government agencies. Archives are all over. There's probably an archive in your attic. Mm -hmm. Old papers that have never been published. Okay. They're not organized, maybe, in the attic, but they're there. And they're potentially invaluable resources for historians, or they certainly will be maybe in 100 years. Right, okay. Historians go to archives. We look through papers maybe with the idea of solving some particular problem, some question we've got, some, some burning question about how science was done in the 19th century. But instead of finding documents relevant to that question, we find something completely different. And so, again, it suggests new questions and suggests new projects. And when we get back to the museum with our notes or with uh, scans or photocopies of these documents, we wind up going in a completely different direction. And so that's one way in which paleontology and history, history of science are very similar. So for students who are doing their own research, I would imagine that sometimes the smallest details probably lend themselves to some of the largest discoveries. Do you have any comments about something like that? Well, that's, that's definitely true. You never know what's going to be, it's impossible to know, as a scientist, it's impossible to know what's going to be interesting to future historians of science. Often we discard notes that we think, oh, this is never going to be interesting to me. This, this, was a, this was a dead end. This led me nowhere. I'm not interested in this. I'm just going to throw this out. Those are the things that a lot of historians want to see. What were the unproductive dead ends? Uh, what, what kind of, we call these, sometimes we call these garden paths, right? When a scientist is led down a garden path that goes nowhere, that's really interesting to historians. Why did this, why did this project fizzle? Why didn't it yield something interesting? Why did it, you know, what happened? Those things are really interesting to historians. Scientists often, when they write their own histories, they do a very poor job of it because they tell this triumphant march of progress. It's it's a straight linear story, and and historians are interested in the in the, the, what went in the wrong. complications, <laughs> right? Because that's you know those are often very revealing about how science really works. So it's impossible to predict what historians are going to be interested in. And one of the things that I do want, so when I go on the field, for instance, with you know I have, I have several paleontological colleagues that I go on the field with that will be going again this summer. I record things that I know they're not recording. Uh, and I feel like this is sort of like my... Like what color shirt you wore that day? Well, <laughs> that does get recorded in photographs. Uh, so people are interested in questions like that. What was the weather like? What were they eating? How, where did they get their water? How did they move specimens around? How did they pick these 2,000-pound specimens up? Out of all of your positions, what's your favorite part of your career? My favorite thing, I suppose, is the, the discovery act. 
so it's uh, you know whether I'm whether I'm wearing my paleontology hat in paleontology that means field work. If I'm wearing my historian hat, my favorite thing to do would be to go to an archive, look through old papers. There's something that even still after doing this for I don't know close to 20 years now, it's still thrilling to you know go to an archive for the first time, open up a document box thumb through a couple of pages and read something that you know nobody has read in a hundred years. And so since this is the walking classroom, I have to ask, what is your favorite place to walk? I love walking. Uh, In fact, I don't, one of my lifetime goals is to never own a car. So I've never owned a car. My favorite place to walk, well, I love to walk anywhere where there's rocks. So like out west, I love walking out west, but around in, in North Carolina, actually my favorite place to walk is Oakwood. I love walking around the Oakwood neighborhood and Oakwood Cemetery. It's an old cemetery in the Oakwood neighborhood that's uh, very hilly, lots of old trees, lots of old tombstones. I, I love cemeteries. It's a, it's a great place to walk. And as you, you had mentioned earlier, anywhere that there's rocks, and most people, when they walk, they just see rocks, but you see history and you see you know, paleontology and you see information there. Yeah, I do. I see data. And sometimes I find coins. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Take care.